Welcome to another episode of the Whiteness in America podcast. This is episode number nine, and today we have a very special episode for you. We recorded this episode live in front of students, faculty, and staff at the University of Michigan Flint during one of the Intercultural Center's Lunch and Learn series. Uh, and we're very thankful for the students, faculty, and staff that came out to talk with us today. On today's episode, we talked a little bit about the DACA Supreme Court case. We talked about a teacher choosing to use blackface on Halloween. And we most, uh, mostly today's episode is about cancel culture. Again, we're very thankful for uh, the director of the Intercultural Center, Dr. David Luke, and his team for hosting us. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Yeah, and just thinking about like, you know, 
what does it mean to like have rights as human beings, like to be supported and to be cared for and to be treated decently, um, and how this kind of anti-DACA anti movement feels like a kind of nationalism, a kind of scary nationalism. And um, I think it's time for us as, as people to think about, you know, how do we want our societies to look and how do we want to treat the people who live with us and who live and breathe and have the same hopes and aspirations that, that we all have. Um, and so I think this is an important court case. It's also an important time in our nation. And so maybe we can start unpacking a little bit about who the players are, I guess. In this yeah, and fight. according to the various news sources, the, the major reason why the president's administration is wanting to end DACA is uh, the, the creating and maintaining a program was beyond the legal power of any president. So that's kind of the, the basis of the case that the executive branch is pushing forth. And what's really fascinating behind that is that many of the appointed judges are kind of saying, oh, well, we're just gonna take the president's argue at face value and say, we don't believe that there's anything else behind that. Mm -hmm. But when you start digging into who runs the immigration policies in the, in the executive branch, it falls upon largely one individual and that's Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller worked for um, the former uh, attorney general um, and, and for a long time and, and recently, I don't know how many of you know this, had some emails leaked uh, yesterday. So that really shows kind of his very nationalistic framework mm -hmm. and some sort of white supremacist framework that he kind of um, follows through. And so when you apply that to immigration policy and you have that kind of chirping into the president's ear, I think that has an interesting potential ramification for how um, the executive branch moves about immigration and DACA and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I'm just really curious about kind of thinking about what the constructs and the challenges are with nationalism mm -hmm. as a whole. Because if that's the framework we're using for immigration policy and that's the framework we're using to address issues of DACA, for example, then what does that mean and where does that come from and when does that stem from and, mm -hmm. and what does that challenge? Because I think nationalism in and of itself is a problematic paradigmatic framework to view and to, to operate from. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, for me it's like, it's another way of upholding whiteness because there's always this question of, did someone come here the right way? Right. And historically, when we look at how people got here and how especially white settler colonialists got here, um, they didn't get here the right way, right? They were able to come and they were able to displace millions of people and they were able to take land that wasn't theirs. And then suddenly now we're gonna develop a really rigorous and rigid policy that says, oh, well, those people who are coming now are coming the wrong way. Right. And it's, it's basically privileging their ancestors and telling people who are coming here, seeking a better life, seeking a better society and wanting the freedom to move um, and join new communities that there's a right way and there's a wrong way, but it's based on whose who's rules, whose regulations, whose vision of what's the right way. And for me, that's fundamentally white supremacy in action, um, where we see white people historically being able to do things and make policies and take land and take resources and they'll historically be seen in the right because they get to rewrite the history but when people of color engage in stuff that's not even nearly as egregious um, we're labeled and put in this place as being like in the wrong and being yeah. um, you know threats and dangers to society when I don't think that that's fair at all yeah and I think it's interesting too of what what gets determined to be a nationalistic framework of mm -hmm. how that gets teased out into um, what it means to support certain things and not support certain things. You, you, we saw a lot of this America first mm -hmm. and who gets to determine what is American and, mm -hmm. and what that looks like. And so a lot of times when you think about the construction of whiteness, which really kind of dates back historically to the 1600s, if you're not, if you're removing the slavery aspect of it, um, during Bacon's rebellion, when you had very little discussion of race, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden there were um, low SES white folks that were supporting and working with enslaved Africans and those in power said, wait, wait, we need to create some sort of distinction between the two so there can be some divisiveness. And that's where we start seeing the first documentation of, of race start to happen. And so when you see and think about this nationalistic framework, that nationalistic framework tends to benefit those that are in power and those that look more like me than they do Erica, mm -hmm. right? So we wanted to kind of bring this up today as kind of a primer for our discussion because it's something that's relevant, it's current, it's, ha it's happening. Mm -hmm. The emails uh, of Stephen Miller came out yesterday and those are pretty provocative in terms of the way that he uses both in a public persona has veiled white supremacist viewpoints and then in his emails very much confirm that and if mm -hmm. not deepen the roots of his buying into the system of white supremacy as a nationalistic framework. Yeah. So we wanted to kind of bring that up as our first discussion point. Yeah. Um, and then as always around Halloween, someone uh, in a position of power wears blackface. And there was a teacher mm -hmm. uh, in California yeah. uh, who dressed up as common 
this past year, and basically he said, I was just trying it out. Wanted to see how it went, um, which is really interesting. And so there's a, there's a long history and problematization with blackface, but yeah. um, that was really uh, another thing that came up since our last time we talked. That's yeah. right, yeah. So it's like basically like every week, you know, we're seeing whiteness in operation and just kind of thinking about how um, we can start dismantling that intentionally, starting to see it, but also recognizing that it's, it's operating very ex explicitly and also subtly, so. Yep, so we wanted to talk mainly today about, and I know there has been some conversation about this, of cancel culture and call out culture, um, and, and, and kind of de deconstruct that a little bit and have your, this is where we're kind of looking for some opportunity for you all to talk about this, because I think it's really interesting in conversations about equity and justice, how we think about um, repairing harm, how we think mm -hmm. about vin uh, vindication, how we think about who has a voice and who doesn't, who can sit at a table and have conversations, who benefits from having the conversations, mm -hmm. and who gets excluded for various reasons, probably some good, and not. So mm -hmm. I think it adds into this thing because I think a lot of times, and I'll speak from a, a, my own perspective of being a white person, um, I grew up wanting to not be seen as racist. So I didn't want to be seen in a, in a space of doing harm, even though I knew that viewpoints I had or things that I said or did were harmful or, or problematic, right? And so put that into a culture where we're now shaming folks publicly, in a sense, what does that mean? And mm -hmm. so Eric and I have a really interesting, I think, take on that, and we'll take you through that journey today, but mm -hmm. that's kind of where we're gonna kind of uh, spend some time today. Mm -hmm. Would it be helpful for us to turn it to the audience and ask them what is cancel culture or what you've heard of cancel culture? Yeah, what do you all know about cancel yeah. culture? And so cancel culture, what, have you heard the term before? What is cancel culture and what have you heard about it? And tell us your name. My name's Kenny Hall. Uh, cancel culture is kind of, uh, once something you've uh, done has been seen as problematic, it's just about, it's over. There's really no time to, like, you know, maybe learn from your mistake and kind of correct it. And uh, it can be kind of seen as performative allyship where you're just kind of trying to get social clout by yelling at people. Mm -hmm. okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Other thoughts? Is there ever a, a use for cancel culture? David Luke. Um, Dr. So Luke. from the perspective of the person who was harmed or the community that is harmed, cancel culture protects from further harm and is punitive in a way, punishing right. the person who has done Right, so harm. some examples of folks that have been quote unquote canceled, Louis C.K., uh, Bill Cosby, mm -hmm. R. Kelly. R. Kelly. Um, so just some some examples. Uh, there was a point in which there was some prob probability of Tiger Woods having, yeah. and this was before this became somewhat of a phenomena. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so so kind of put that in the framework of your understanding. So what what are the barriers behind that? What are some things that really are challenges behind cancel culture, and what are the positives? So uh, Dr. Luke provided some examples of um, what it means when a community that's been harmed by someone has experienced this and, and some value behind it. What are other values or um, uh, challenges behind that particular topic mm -hmm. or idea? Uh, Kenny Holt again. I mean, I think there's a lot of benefits because sometimes there's people and it comes out that they've just done such horrible things and that they knew were wrong and it's like, all right, you're done. Like, and they need to sort of just be called out and singled out, of, like, and having their awful behavior condemned. So people that are victims of that sort of behavior can feel safer in society knowing that we're not gonna tolerate that sort of mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm Adri um, Martinez. Uh, I think cancel culture has a lot of negative connotations in terms of like people being overly sensitive mm. and just wanting to attack people but kind of going off um what he had said about like it's a means of protection also mm. a really um strong way to solidify one's own identity um and when that gets challenged mm -hmm. like and a lot of these um, cancellations also do with the legal activities, mm -hmm. <laughs> which aren't always acknowledged and kind of brushed away. Um, okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Yeah. 
God. Okay, so I like the. F- What's your name? Oh, Tiffany. My name is Tiffany. I like the fact that um, it brings people together over important issues. But what I don't like is that it has to. Why can't people come together like just like right now? Why can't we just mm. come together and have a conversation? Why does it have to be like degrading somebody else or putting somebody else on the um, spotlight? You know. We should be able to have those conversations without situations happening to push that conversation. Okay. Right. Okay. That's where we're hoping to get. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Other comments or thoughts? Uh, Emmanuel Wright. I, I agree with the premise of council culture, uh, cancel culture because I think that it, um, people who push uh, like the culture and who are not afraid to speak out against, you know, these sexist, misogynistic, uh, feministic people or ideas. Um, I think that they are doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. I just think that the culture actually doesn't promote a healthy exchange of ideas, mm-hmm. and uh, it tends to make the people with the unpopular ideas um, able to make themselves sort of a martyr for their platform mm-hmm. and for their ideas. So that. That makes it even more like it. It makes their platform even more scary and their base even more scary because mm-hmm. it's it's just like oh well I did this and these people attacked me and so this is why we should mm-hmm. believe in it because it's what they don't like and mm-hmm. we need to speak out against this culture. So I think that's where it becomes like an unhealthy divide. Okay. I agree with the premise, mm-hmm. but I think I, there should be a way to where we can come together like this and just have a dialogue about it and mm-hmm. not just attacking people for any given thing. Yeah, and that's a really good point because there's some challenges to economically. You know, when I was in college, um, my f- some of my first places of activism were related to um, stemmed from um, workers' rights consortium. So, like, my university used a lot of and would buy T-shirts that were from companies that had a lot of folks that were in um, sweatshops, right? And so mm-hmm. we thought if we economically supported the, the organizations and the companies that didn't do that, the companies that had practices in sweatshops would cease their practice. And what we find with cancel culture when it comes to economic advantage, like I'm not going to buy something from Chick-fil-A because they're horribly offensive to the LGBT community, um, that actually isn't always as effective as we mm-hmm. think it's going to be. It's it's a good point of standing and say, mm-hmm. I'm gonna put my, my dollars where it, where it might make an impact, but it doesn't all, it, you can't just stop there, mm-hmm. right? So me just not going to Chick-fil-A is not gonna be enough for Chick-fil-A to cease to exist or to have its harmful framework of, of not supporting the LGBT community, right, right. right? But it also makes me think about like, so there, there are dimensions of cancel culture that I think are, well, so first of all, just the term cancel culture for me, um, I wanna go around it because yeah. I think it's become, a, the term itself has become so polarized. and. When we start thinking about systems of, of oppression, systems of um, you know, dominance, I think that they have mechanisms that push back against anything that calls them out, right? So um, if you're talking to a person who's engaging in white supremacy or racism and you tell them that this is a problematic thing you've done, the reaction is, well, wait, you're not being polite in how you're telling me that I'm doing something that's causing you harm. Or if you're doing, if you're promote, um, promoting business practices that cause a group of people to just have intense suffering, well, like that's just how businesses are run. And are you are you now a socialist because you are pushing back against the way we have done things forever, right? So sometimes I think the critique of cancel culture that comes from maybe um, people who are embedded in the in the negative behaviors is kind of a way of them demonizing the actual fight for us to bring awareness of stuff that's going on, right? Right. That, that maybe instead of us talking about like cancel culture in this very polarized, politicized way, we have to think about the fact that maybe there's a different term that we can use. So some people talk about calling you out, but people also talk about how do I call you back in, yeah. right? So there's call out culture, but also like I'm trying to bring awareness to you of the things that you're doing that are harmful. And then asking you to figure out how do you take on like that work? Right? How do you do the work? So, it, so again, it's not just that we're going to stop shopping at your company or that we are going to stop buying your products, but I'm going to turn the radio off when right. R. Kelly comes on. Right. Right. But we want to hold those people accountable, right. and we want to say to someone like R. Kelly, "Do you recognize that what you've done is incre- incredibly devastating and harmful? And now the onus is on you to decide whether or not you will see that and act accordingly." 
So when someone like him gets canceled, it's oftentimes because they refuse to do that next step, to see that there are things that they have done have been incredibly harmful and painful to the people around them. And that's why I'm like, yeah, I'm okay canceling that person. But the thing that's important for me is that where do we get to the beginning of making awareness of and, and, and bringing right. attention to those systems of oppression that cause harm to us. And I think that's a part of cancel culture. I think that's incredibly valuable to be able to see things that we didn't see before and talk about and name things that are troublesome for all of our society. Well, and I think also coming from a dominant lens perspective. So I'm white, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cisgender man, I'm he uh, heterosexual. Like I grew up in a Christian valued community, although I'm not Christian myself in terms of my current faith. Um, I'm able-bodied or temporarily able-bodied. I speak English, English is my first language. Um, the list goes on and on. I think there needs to be some level of accountability for folks to understand that the way that we operationalize systems that are meant to benefit me and the continued doing of that is problematic. And so not to say that, you know, I, I think there was an interesting thing um, that came up yesterday. Um, do you all know who Megan Rapino is, the soccer player? Do you all see what she said yesterday? So she won Woman of the Year, right? So I have a quote um, that she said, and it was really interesting, and I promise it's related, or at least is in my head. Um, she said, while I'm enjoying all of this unprecedented and frankly a little bit uncomfortable attention and personal success, in large part due to my activism off the field, Colin Kaepernick is still effectively banned from the NFL for kneeling during the national anthem and protest of known and systemic police brutality against people of culture, known in systemic racial, inju racist and racial injustice, and known in systemic white supremacy. So what, what Megan's doing in a sense is calling out the NFL, right? Mm -hmm. So she's challenging them to a certain mm -hmm. degree and, and not saying we should boycott the NFL or they need to be canceled, which might not be a bad step mm -hmm. um, because they are a large industrial organization that is largely owned by white men that are powerful, that are putting black bodies on the field to damage themselves on a pretty regular basis and making a lot of money off of it in short, mm -hmm. um, but they are, um, she is challenging, I think, the nature of how is it someone like me, a white woman who has status and power gets applauded for standing up for civil rights when someone who did the exact, well, he didn't stand up, he kneeled, but he stood up for civil rights for something that was really harmful, mm -hmm. can't get employment because that's of right. that, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that that's an interesting conversation and maybe that's a different way right. to think about this exactly. in a sense of not necessarily canceling, but really challenging that. and. And you know, that's why part of it is, as a white person doing this work on issues of race, this is where I see how I fit. Like I have space, I have immunity in some regard not to have negative ramifications, that's whereas right. Erica may not have that, even that's though right. she's a tenured professor, right. right? And thinking about someone like Colin Kaepernick, I remember when Jay-Z signed on um, to become one of the co-owners of an NFL team, he kind of framed the language of, well, it's time for us to move away from the kind of kneeling and the kind of protest that we get from someone like Colin Kaepernick. And that statement for me was so problematic because again, it's part of that system that says that people who stand up, people who fight, people who put their, their livelihood on the line in the very way that Colin Kaepernick did, again, that kind of protest, that kind of movement gets sidelined. Well, okay, that was good, that was cute, but we need to move on from that. And the question is, do we? Like maybe we need more Colin Kaepernicks in the world, whether it's in football, or maybe we need more people in our workplaces to do that kind of outright calling out systems that are causing harm to other people. But we, again, we, I, for me, I think this is the functioning of the kinds of supremacies, whether it's white supremacy and capitalism, that very quickly demonize those voices that push back against it. So whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Colin Kaepernick, whether it's uh, the call-out culture in general, um, there's a kind of idea that, well, okay, we're, that makes us uncomfortable, so let's stop doing that, because it's not beneficial to those of us who are holding power. And there's benefit, too, I think, to, as I think was pointed out, challenging the fragility and reaction. So mm -hmm. a lot of times, and I have ha had this happen, um, I I'm, have a relatively, I don't know, I'm a middle manager here at the university, for lack of better words, mm. and so I supervise people, and, and I try to lead from a place of, vulnerability from mm. a space of knowing that I should be called out and, and welcome that. And I'm not just saying on issues of race, but like my staff need to be know, to know that they are supported and that they can challenge me in, in trying to leveling those ideas of, right. of power dynamics. And that's r really what that is mm. in a space of white supremacy, challenging that dominant narrative. The person reacts in a fragile, fragile way because they're, you're challenging their power. You're taking that mm -hmm. away from them in a way that has never been done before, and that leaves people feeling vulnerable, mm -hmm. and, and, and it gives them a space to and, and react in a way that says, whoa, 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 mm -hmm. you're overstepping your bounds, and that's where we see a lot of times, um, and it's been well documented, particularly in higher ed, um, with faculty, particularly women faculty of color, 
um, for being called out, for being too aggressive, being too boisterous, for having an opinion um, mm -hmm. in faculty meetings and spaces. And, and that's problematic that we don't create that welcoming space to do that. Right, yeah. So we almost have a culture that is resistant fundamentally. Like it's about being polite. Like I can punch you in the face, but you have to be polite in telling me not to punch you in the face because I, you know, that's right. you made me uncomfortable by telling me very loudly that I, I shouldn't punch you in the face. Activism right? is not polite. <laughs> right, shouldn't be right. polite. Yeah. Um, and like you said, the question of, of thinking about our leaders and people who are the recipients of the call out, like what's your obligation? What's your, you know, what kind of framework or what frame of mind do you need to be in? And I think that needs to be part of the conversation that, um, again, it's not necessarily that I'm calling you out like I'm calling you in. So say I'm mm -hmm. working under Tom and I see that he's doing something that's incredibly sexist. And I want to say to him, this needs to change, right? So essentially I've called you out on this. Right. What do you do? Like, how do you how do you process what it is I've said? What is what is the whole emotional set of reactions that goes with that, and how do we get to a better place, right? Yep. And I think that's an important part of this conversation that's left out. We don't talk about we talk about the person doing the calling out, but we don't talk about the people who need to have those ears open to hear and understand the changes that need to happen to make those spaces safer for the people who work there or live in them. Well, I think someone said it earlier too, we need to have more conversation. We mm. need to be able to have space for critical dialogue mm. instead of having 140 or 180 whatever characters now define how we debate important issues in society. We need to be able to have this space to have conversation where I can challenge David Luke in the way that he runs or does something or acts in a certain way and not have him be feel threatened by his masculinity threatened or his, his his normative heterosexuality be threatened, um, or my own whiteness be threatened in that manner, and just know that we're all evolving as humans, mm -hmm. right? But also have some level of accountability. When you do bad shit, you need to be held accountable for that. Right. And there needs to be some level for that. Right. We and swear on the podcast, by yeah, the way. Yeah, we do. It's we explicit. Do. We didn't so know we do. Yeah. We accept all languages. Yeah, so we accept all languages. But okay, so I want to think about something you just said. Like, how do we have this conversation without provoking fragility? And I think. Hmm. I think the conversation's gonna provoke fragility no matter what, no matter how nicely I say it to you, no matter how calmly and politely I bring the conversation up, just the fact of me saying it right. is gonna cause a person to do this thing. And I've seen the face and I've seen the body language shift when I say, hey, um, very nicely, uh, do you mind not doing that again? And the body language shifts right away because I'm saying it in the nicest way possible, but it's not how I'm saying it, it's the very fact that I said it. And particularly if it's right. coming from someone you normally see as subordinate, mm -hmm. whether it's identity subordinate or subordinate in role That's in an right. organization. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so for sure. I think part of the conversation, like we sometimes people say, well, how do we have this conversation in a way that's safe? Maybe the brave space analogy is much better, mm -hmm. right? Like yep. we're, we're going to have a difficult conversation and you may feel uncomfortable in the process of it, but that's also okay, right? It's also okay for someone to sit with the reality of maybe the impact of their actions, even if it's not egregious. Maybe the person's not intending to cause harm, but there's still the impact on the people around them. Sure. And so how do we still sit with that reality, right? And the discomfort of having heard that from people that we care about, or maybe people we don't even care about, but we've heard something that we need to hear and, and attend to. So, so if the whole point of call out or cancel culture or calling in culture is to repair harm, right? Or to seek some sort of justice, I think maybe one of the things that we could do, or maybe that's not the point, but that's kind of where we would think the point ought to be, is we really need to focus on what does justice look like. Mm. So for folks that have been harmed, folks that have experienced systemic oppression or even interpersonal oppression, what does justice look like for you? What would it look like to have justice happen? Mm -hmm. I, and that's where we want to kind of open up some conversation. What would ideally justice look like? What is our endpoint? Hello, um, my name is Jada Hall. Um, to me, justice looks like accountability, mm -hmm. but we obviously can't say that the other person will take accountability mm -hmm. for their actions, mm -hmm. but to me, justice is accountability. Okay. Thanks, Jada. Jada said if you couldn't hear her, the justice for her looks like accountability. Dr. P, episode guest number five. The illustrious Dr. P. My challenge is that we can cancel culture for certain people who are in the limelight, and we can call out others. We are great imitators, so we have a person who represents our country. And I have a hard time talking about this. That's why I'm sitting right there looking. So we have a person 
that represents our nation. He was doing everything that we call out anybody else for doing, right? You know, people, you know, he's public calling people son of bitches who are bowing, who are kneeling, right? He has no respect for women. We call people out for that, right? He's a, a thug who, who's in the White House planting and creating uh, systems of thuggery na nationally. And we as a nation, we can talk about calling out R. Kelly, Bill Cosby. We don't even call out Kavanaugh. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so there are certain beings that don't get called out. Mm. I, I'm challenged with that. Like, mm. I, don't, I don't even know how to, that makes me feel powerless. Mm. That as a country, there is nothing that we can do between elections that can get rid of somebody who totally, totally misrepresents us to other nations, but not only to other nations, but to ourselves. How do I, how do I raise a child mm -hmm. in this nation looking at this person who's representing us and what our values are, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Good point. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to say that I, uh, definitely agree with that but I do think that like Donald Trump gets called out on a lot of stuff he's just sort of immune to it to the degree he just doesn't care and uh, neither does his base so I feel like justice in a lot of ways would be people like making others that won't take accountability take accountability for their actions so if Donald Trump gets called out for doing something awful and he doesn't care his base is like you know what now like that's not all right that is some form of justice. Well, I think that gets back to, Eric and I talk a lot about the concept and construct of humanizing folks. We've lost the ability to humanize and see across our political difference or whatever it might be, you know, and I think that's where a lot of this starts to begin is, is we have to be able to humanize mm. and, and, and get through some of that. Um, but I don't know, I mean, to Dr. Mm. P's point, I think it's really difficult, um, you know, coming up to this point of time where we're going to be spending time with a bunch of people that ideological, I'm, I'm talking my family, I'm going to be spending time with people that might have different ideologi ideological understandings than I do. What do I want my kids exposed to and not exposed to? How do I view that? What does that look like? And I think we, th we raise a lot of good questions about who we're choosing to put in positions of power hmm. and who's making those decisions ultimately, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that that's also some of this too is that it's not just that we disagree politi politically, mm. it's that ideologically some of the policies that are being pushed forth now are dehumanizing right. to certain groups of folks right. that right. have been dehumanized historically and systemically, but it's even more so right. on a, in, a f in your face level than mm -hmm. it has been in the past. Well, what's so interesting about the conversation of humanization, I think the conversation has not been used in that way. It's not been, let's humanize the people who are the immigrants locked up in detention centers. Let's humanize the people who have been brutalized by the police. But it's been, let's humanize the white supremacists who are just everyday good folks who live in their spaces and they, they want good jobs like you do and they want to live in a good society as you do. And so we spend a lot of time humanizing those people, but in a way that doesn't ever still target and, rec and recognize that even though they are still human just like me, they still cause incredible harm, right? right? And so how do, we, how do we think about that? Because sometimes there is a lot of work to like, okay, let's, let's get in the mind of the white supremacist or let's get in the mind and the heart of the person that's done these things, which we should. Like, again, they're human beings like us, but sometimes I do wonder like, who is gonna humanize the people of color who are abused or the people who are the working class people who are working in the sweatshops? Like that never happens. And I always think that that's something we have to be mindful of. That for me feels like, that feels like white supremacy fundamentally, because white supremacy has always humanized white, white upper middle class men, right. in my experience, and, and shown the world from their perspective. And let's think about how we, we are aware of how even that is a, is a kind of tool. Um, and the other thing, thinking about call out culture. So this is a conversation I often have with my students, like, you know, I go to a Thanksgiving dinner and I'm, I'm, I'm with grandpa or grandma and you know, they say some really crazy stuff at the table, some homophobic stuff or some like really sexist stuff or some really racist stuff. I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut because you know, it's gonna, it's gonna like ruin the event and they're, they're too old to change. 
And I always think about, again, coming back to what call-out culture is about. Can you cancel grandma? I mean, <laughs> you might not cancel grandma. You can't, can't, <laughs> you can't cancel granny. But you might put a perspective out there that challenges granny. Yeah. And maybe it's not about changing Granny's mind, but it's about your cousins and your kids and the nieces and nephews, nephews who are sitting at the table listening to Granny go unchallenged, right? And it's not that I'm gonna be like, Granny, you suck, let me tell you. Like, no, I get put out of the house and like, it, it is an elder and it's of course someone that I you respect. You won't get pie. I later. won't get the pie and Granny makes pie. good pie. Right. But I might say to Granny, hey Granny, I don't agree with that. Or hey Granny, um, you know, I'm a person and that's one of those identities that you just talked really badly about or like it's something that I don't think we should be doing. And it's not even that I've, I've beat up Granny or I've, I've disrespected her, but I've, I've called out or I pointed out something so that the others could hear, even if Granny's never going to change her mind. Right. And I do wonder if there's room for that. There's got to be. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you ask sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. My name is Emmanuel Wright again. Um, I was just that brought up actually some memories from uh, the Christmases because I live I live uh, in California and so mm -hmm. I come here for school but um one thing that I go through every single Christmas is like my grandma who is a violent Trump supporter and just mm -hmm. like having 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 to almost endure those conversations with her mm. is just unbearable sometimes but mm. it's learning to like my when my mom and my grandma always wanted to call me out on something, mm. it's they they never called it calling me out. They mm. always called it speaking the truth in love. And so yeah. that's what I used to so when I so when I, you know, have to talk to my grandma, I'm like, Oh grandma, you know, I'm speaking the truth in love right now. I love you, but mm. this and this and this and then they get my attention. So it's like they're like, Oh wow, okay, well we can't do that anymore mm. and then um it's also giving like giving myself because my little brother and sister, you know, they're growing up, they're developing, they're hearing all this stuff on a daily basis, and then mm -hmm. for me to come back, oh, you know, Big Brother is going to college, he's developing all these ideas, and uh, showing them, like, hey, this is, like, this is okay to do. Like, mm -hmm. you don't have to, like, take everything with a grain of salt. Be a critic, always. Like, mm -hmm. um, and just teaching them how to do that by showing up in the space and being like, okay, this is what I believe, and it's mm -hmm. okay to believe something different. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I want to address, uh, what it was, feeling powerless mm. to um, maybe in government. Uh, I think that it's very easy to feel powerless in a, mm. in a political system that doesn't seem to value you. But um, I do think that, I do know that we aren't powerless. I know mm. that being an activist in every space that you go in, encouraging people to vote. Michigan is one of the very, uh, Michigan is one of the few states that allows people to register to vote on the day of elections, mm. which is not ev not something right. that happens every day. So encouraging people to vote in every space and for every election that they're in um, is an activism in itself and letting them know that you can vote on the mm. day on the day you register to vote. I was in the barbershop a few weeks ago and uh, we were talking about voting and blah, 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 politics. Mm. And then and I was quiet up until, oh yeah, I think I missed the deadline to, ve or to mm. register to vote for this next election. I was like, actually, <laughs> you didn't. And so like even then, you know, it's just showing up in those spaces and letting people know, being educated on these issues so mm. that you can educate other people is mm. an activism in, in a form of power that you do have. Wow. And I, I think a lot of times oppression and white supremacy in particular, if we're narrowing it, operates in a, a very, um, when we start to lose the specificity and, and to make things so broad and make things, um, uh, this stuff is complicated. It can't be generalized in the mm -hmm. sense that I think it often is. And, and, I, and I, one of the things that I'm starting to hear kind of come out in this conversation is this concept of intersectionality, which was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and so I think thinking about that in, the, in its complicated verse of, it's a compounding of privileges or a compounding of oppressions based on your identities. And if you're not familiar with the term and you don't want to read the work because it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to find the actual work, there was a really great episode of Blackish um, a couple of weeks ago that talked about this and it really um, the the main character of the show goes oh men we're the black we're the white people of, of gender oppression mm. right and so it's like oh I get it like not only am I, I'm, a, I'm a black man so I have oppression being a black person but but then I also mm. hold power and privilege when it comes to my own gender mm -hmm. identity and not understanding his framework of holding women down mm -hmm. in that space. And so it's really this fascinating kind of discussion. And I think anytime we start to talk about oppression and folks dismiss 
someone who is feeling oppressed, it, often it's because they want to generalize it and make one themselves feel better, but to explain away the reality of that experience because it's not their lived experience, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I love this term that you use, speaking the truth in love, and like yeah, as we too. as we talk to this person and try to like challenge their ability to see the things that they can't see, like. I'm trying to bring you back in, brother. I'm trying to let you right. see that, you know, even though it's a black man, you do face incredible violence and incredible oppression. How can we short circuit those systems of oppression that also circulate in gender, right, yeah. in the family space? And so how can, can I bring you back in love, right? Because right. I'm trying to have relationships with you. I'm trying to remain in community with you. And it's important for you to be able to see that. And so speaking the truth in love, I think is a great way of framing that calling you in, that calling you back right. to your better self. So we have a request to open the question. Yeah, so question yeah, first. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us your name and your question. My name is Tiffany again. Yeah. So starting with Dr. Erica, I had a question. Um, it kind of goes along with what the gentleman there said. Yeah. You said activist isn't polite, but mm -hmm. you also like mentioned how like, especially in black culture, you can't really like just speak up to your family because they think it's disrespect mm -hmm. or things like that. So how did you kind of like find your voice and be comfortable having those conversations with like family and friends mm -hmm. without like wanting to step on someone's toes or feel like you're offending them? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I've had to step on the toes, right? Because it's like my survival requires it for me to be able to be seen. And so I'm just gonna have to say, hey, this thing you said hurts, you know, and I, and I don't appreciate it. Um, some family members, quite honestly, I've just not engaged with, right? And I have black Trump supporting family members. Um, and for me, that's always been a kind of struggle because how do we even come to the same table? And so what I've done in those spaces is just say, I need some distance just to protect my spirit because <laughs> engaging with you is going to crush my spirit right now and it's going gonna, it's gonna to do things to me that are not going to put me in a good space. Um, but there are elements of our culture that do allow us to be very bold and direct, like you know, our barbershop culture, you know, our sitting around the table and playing cards culture. Like we can be very direct with our loved ones um, and we can key it in a way that's like, I'm, I'm speaking the truth, <laughs> speaking truth to power, speaking the truth in love, um, and just say, let's just have a real dialogue about it. So it's not that I'm attacking you, but like, listen, auntie, like, come on, that thing you just said, what about this? Can you think about it a different way? And like, let's have that conversation. Um, and just, like, yeah, just doing it not from a necessarily a space of attack, perhaps, but, but just like, I love you and I need you to see this. <laughs> I need you to see me, right? And I need you to really have this conversation with me. But there is that generational divide. Like there are some elders I can't come at, <laughs> right? Um, and, it, and it means that I have to come at it in a different way, but I still might say it. I still might say, yeah, Grandma, I don't really agree with that. But all right, love you, but I don't agree with what you just said. See, my family, um, my grandparents are both from Oklahoma, so they're mm -hmm. like super Southern and like mm -hmm. their values and everything. Mm -hmm. So like you even like just saying anything to them is yeah. like, like even if I breathe the wrong yeah. way after they say something, okay. they like feel like I like disrespected them or something. Yeah. So it's very hard like navigating yeah. that. Yeah. Like Early on, you know, I also had to come to the space where, you know, so sometimes we get so caught up in wanting to seem good. Like mm. I'm the good daughter, I'm the obedient daughter, I'm the one that listens and fits in. Um, and very early on for me, it was when it, it happened when I went through a religious conversion. And so I left the religion of my family and that was a big schism, right? Um, and I remember being in those spaces and just feeling like, oh, I'm not the good daughter anymore because I'm saying stuff and I'm believing stuff and I'm doing stuff that's, that's just fundamentally different from my family. And learning how to be okay with that, even though it was hard yeah. and isolating and it felt lonely. But it's also given me a kind of strength now where I can move in those spaces and I, and I feel like my emotional health doesn't require me to be the good daughter, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I can be the, I can be the, diffi the difficult one, right? And I'm okay with that because my identity is secure now. At first it wasn't, it was hard, but now I'm in a better place with that. So I don't even know if I answered what you, you did. You did, okay. yeah, you definitely <laughs> did. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, for Dr. Tom. Yeah. Um, First off, I wanted to mention that I really like appreciate and love the fact that you're here having this conversation because I, I was born in Flint, but I grew up in like white schools and white areas, mm -hmm. and I've never met any white person that is comfortable having like these type of conversations. And so my question to you is, how did you become like so transparent and vulnerable to where you feel comfortable enough to just talk about it? Because I would like to start having those conversations with different people of other races, but kind of like got to know how to tread the waters. Yeah, um, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, I got called out a lot, uh, and I had to fi figure out a way to get through my own, you know, we've used the term fragility. Um, I often tell a story. I uh, was 
David's multicultural assistant in undergrad. So at Grand Valley State University, um, we had RAs who were the kind of floor people and then multicultural assistants who did diversity programming and training. And I had a commitment to equity and social justice and my supervisor took me aside and she did this little evaluation of me and what I thought I was really far along in my understanding of civil rights and racism and, and my own understanding of deconstructing who I was as a white person and I was a good white guy. Um, and she's like, yeah, you believe you're over here, but you're really back here, you need to do some work. And that to me really started to this process of how do I get there? And so a lot of it was working with her of like, you need to be vulnerable, you need to own your mistakes, you need to be accountable, you need to sit in your fragility, you need to be able to deal with that and understand that there is no endpoint. So I think a lot of times in this work, um, in education and learning in general, we think there's an endpoint. I have a PhD, therefore I'm done, right? And that's not the case. This, we are forever learning. We're not finished products. And um, I, I think there's this sense of, in my understanding and in, in doing research mostly primarily with white folks, is that there's this fear of wanting to look wrong or say the wrong thing. And so that fear often operates in inaction completely. I'm not gonna participate in class. How many of you have experienced this? You've seen it. We're gonna talk about race today. All the white people go, oh shit, we're gonna <laughs> go to the back of the room. We're gonna put our head down and just pretend we need to get through this without coming across as the racist. Because as soon as I say something, I'm gonna be the racist that gets canceled out of the class. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the acceptance on the end of the white folks in the room is they need to be able to be okay being canceled for a little while and deal with that and, as, and kind of process what that means. And then if there's openness, and that's an, an if, to come back into that dialogue and they're invited back in, right? So I think there's an, also an expectation as a white person that I should be allowed to go in any space mm. because that's how we exist. Mm. We, we took over the North Americas, right? So mm. we should be allowed to go in any space even though we're not invited. And I think that that still happens, right? Yeah. Um, I, my best friend, I first met him and uh, he was applying and I was applying to graduate school and uh, I had gotten there a day, my interviews were a day early, his interviews were a day after mine, and we were sharing an apartment, but he didn't know I was there. I didn't know he was coming in. And I came in after doing my interviews for a day, and he's uh, relatively tall, um, uh, he's biracial, but identifies mostly as black, and, um, and he was in bed sleeping, because he had a big interview the next day. I came in, I had been out kind of celebrating, finishing interviewing, and feeling good about life. And I walk in, I'm like, hi, I'm Tom, nice to meet you. And he's like, oh, who is this guy? And why is there a white guy in my apartment? Like he was totally taken aside. He did not like me for a long time. And I tell that story because I think for me, that was a point of how do I understand how to build that credibility as a human and to not just kind of think that someone owes me the ability to, to one, get up in their space, but also, um, be my friend just because I'm ready to be friends with them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of those experiences throughout my life that have kind of shaped that, but it's a constant work. Mm -hmm. um, I constantly make mistakes. Um, if you read my dissertation, which I wouldn't, because uh, it's really long, um, I call myself out a couple times in it. My mm -hmm. dissertation chair called me out in, during one of my proposals, and she's like, why are you putting the labor on the people of color? Mm -hmm. And that's why I do mostly research on white folks, is because I don't want to put that labor on folks of color, and I feel like my space in this research world is, to challenge and work with white folks to get better about this stuff mm -hmm. because we don't know how to talk about right. it. So, It makes mm -hmm. me think also like when you talk about, um, it's like you're exercising a muscle, right? Yeah. And it's a muscle that I think because white people are not engaging in the conversation, they're also not exercising that muscle of how to sit with the discomfort of the conversation. And it makes, it makes me actually think of Dr. P and her work on mindfulness, right? right? And sometimes when you're sitting with, a dis when you're sitting with an uncomfortable emotion, our, our, our national response is just to react to it and to just pop off and to just shut down or to go into a, a bubble and just be like, oh, I, I, why are you making me feel all the things, right? And I think part of, for me, as a person who practices mindfulness too, is learning how to see that those emotions are coming up and see them, but also not to react and not to do the thing that typically happens is to shut down and check out and move out of the space, but to learn how to exercise the muscle of sitting in an uncomfortable space and sitting in a place where you're taking in stuff that you gotta breathe, you gotta breathe through it, just breathe through it, right? And I think I see people like Tom who are doing this work exercising that muscle. Like, and, and what you said when you said you got called out to sit with the information that was given to you and to process it. And then, and then the next step is, now let me do something with it after I've processed it. 
It makes me think of when I'm called out, because I get called out by my people too. And I get mad and pissed off, and I go home, and I get in the bed, and I'm just like, I'm just shut down, I'm not doing anything. And I, I kind of like self-soothe and sulk a bit, and then I'm like, okay, they were right. Let me come back to it and like do something, do something with it, right? That's, yeah. yeah, so that's my take on time. I just totally tried to deconstruct what you told me, but You maybe. did a good job. <laughs> like find your voice and like your identity like when you were younger I guess I would say or continue doing Ooh. it now so um, identity work I, and there's a lot of theory that supports identity development right and so this is the prime space in which folks start to identify who they are and they go mm -hmm. through these phases um, and so I think a lot of it is really trying to figure out and separate yourself from who you think you are mm. and sit with that for a while and explore different things and challenge your ideals and and I think that for me I as I said before I grew up religious I, I was I grew up Catholic and when I was 16 I wanted to be a priest and when I started to really delve into what that meant I was like oh no that's not really for me um, but I really started to go through this exploration of questioning and that, to me, I think has led to where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. I constantly question what I believe I think I know. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's constant, constantly this thing of, am I sure I really am grounded in this? Do I really think this is the truth? And I'm not afraid to challenge my own presuppositions about what my experience or reality is um, and, and not just defend them because they're my beliefs, but defend them in a way that might challenge my beliefs and make me grow as mm -hmm. a person. And I think for me, I, as far as my identity goes and development, I th that, that was really a, a, a firm point of, of yeah. progress. Yeah. For me, for sure, the questioning, because like I said, when I went off to college, I had a radical break with the religious traditions of my family. I joined a whole new religious group, and that was very shocking to the system, right, to have made such a big transition. So the, it started with questioning, though. It started with like, wait, do I really believe the things that my family has told me all my life? And now I'm like, I have to, I have to own this. I have to own these beliefs. And like, what do I really believe? So that was the first step for me. But also the second step was stepping out into that space of being comfortable, being different, right? And like, I think there tends to be, um, our culture drives us to stay in with the people around us and fit in and not make waves and not be different because if you're different, you're not part of the community. And it's like, no, how can I still be in community with you and be okay with the fact that I'm actually different and maybe I think different and I feel different and I voice that. Um, and it was hard, like, you know, going to family functions and like family being like, oh, there she goes. Like, what is she, here she comes, how does she look? What is she wearing? What does she, you know? And, and I'm different now. I'm not, I'm not one of the, you know, quiet, fitting in kind of family members, but I got a lot of strength from that too. Like being able to articulate what I believe. And, and again, doing it in love, I think was an, a big part of that, but also just being in a space of um, being okay with like, not necessarily going with the flow of things. And that shows up in my workplace now. Like when I see injustices happening, my natural reaction is to keep quiet because I don't want anyone to hate me. I don't want anyone to dislike me. I don't want people to think, oh, there she goes. She's being mean again. She's being disruptive again. But I've also learned how to be okay with being that disruptor and being that person that maybe says, hey, I got to speak truth to power here. I like you because you're a disruptor. Yay. Yeah, I, I get to have be friends. Ooh, this is great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we want to be mindful of folks' time. Um, one thing before we close, if, are, there, are there any other final questions? Oh, yeah. Tell us your name. And we will be not long. We won't be traditional faculty. Yeah. Well, you're a faculty. My runs a staff. But. And uh, the question that I have is um, about um, the disconnect between getting faculty and students together to have these conversations. And so that, do you have any suggestions for mm. how we might proceed in that regard? Oh. I think making David do all the work <laughs> to bringing <laughs> folks together and really putting an emphasis. I mean, creating a community here to address issues that are both prevalent in Flint. So Flint is a really interesting dynamic. There's a lot of racial oppression and historical act, um, points of, of that here in this community. And that's part of the reason why I came here is because I wanted to be here in this space to do something and, and make and be a part of something bigger right mm -hmm. and so 
I think finding ways to connect us and, mm -hmm. and having these dialogues, but I think using our, our folks that are committed to this and finding those other folks around campus that are open to having this. I think Erica mentioned at the beginning, she and I have been in, invited and we've done a couple presentations and a few classes on this and we've engaged in, with students in that way. Now they're forced to sit there because it's their class, but it, it, that's part of it too, is, is finding ways to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So classes, I think working with the ICC and other things. Going yeah. to tonight's event. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great events. Uh, Samaj Brown will be on campus yeah. talking about her amazing work. Um, yeah, for me, it's like having the spaces, but also like having a culture, having the signals come down from every level of the institution that says that this is actually what we value. We mm -hmm. value these conversations. So for faculty members, you know, is there a place in your annual evaluation to talk about, did you go to these events? And actually, oh, we, we didn't see you attending them. Here's some that we would like you to go, spreading the word in the department with your department chairs or having our provost or our deans or our chancellor say, this is critical to how we create community, to have these kinds of conversations and to have that backing, I think is really important. I think what, what happens a lot with our faculty is we use this language of like um, faculty autonomy or faculty rights or faculty like purview as a way of shielding ourselves from really engaging with conversations that we need to be engaging. We think, our, we think of ourselves as the experts. We think we know everything. And I'm always shocked that sometimes the people who are teaching the subjects that are about the thing, the oppressions that they're you know, mm -hmm. supposed to have studied are the ones doing the same oppressions because they're not in a culture that tells them this is continual work. We see that with administrators too, where yeah. they may have had a background and experience in doing certain things, yeah. but don't reflect that in the way they, they practice their administrative right. event, right? So, right. so um, thinking about how the yeah. culture of care or the culture of engagement, you know, what kind of conversations are allowed you know, are you a staff person that when you push back, are you supported and welcomed to do that work? If you're a like, so again, creating a culture that just accepts this as part of how we build community, um, I think is a good starting point. And then the spaces that we create where we have the conversations are also good. I led Truth and Action Partnership Project, and I talked with Sue Peterson, and what it is is that, uh, let me get it right, it's called, it's called uh, Racism is a Public Health Crisis. Mm. True story. Racism with public high health crisis is in Wisconsin. They did it there and a couple other places. So we're trying to do one here in the city of Flint. So they were willing to sponsor it and everything. And like she said, I, I love the way she wanted to participate with learning from which I feel the same way myself. So mm -hmm. I feel the students at the University of Michigan can get it started so we can call mm -hmm. a town mm -hmm. hall together. Help to be funny. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you we want to thank everybody for coming today yeah, thanks for that Ray thank um, and we really appreciate you participating in this live recorded yeah. uh, version of whiteness in America podcast Be before we we leave I want to read a quote for you um, by Bell Hooks. If you don't know Bell Hooks, she's an educated uh, scholar um, in, in the field of teaching education. And she wrote, dominator culture has tried to keep us all afraid, to make us choose safety instead of risk, sameness instead of diversity. Moving through that fear, finding out what co connects us, reveling in our differences, this is the process that brings us closer, that gives us the world of shared values, of meaningful community. And that's what I think we're all trying to accomplish by showing up today to have this conversation is build that meaningful community to move forward, to try to disrupt and dismantle the oppressive systems that we all operate in on a regular mm -hmm. basis. So thank you so much for today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has been a great discussion. I appreciate the space. Yeah. Thanks. 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 Thanks and that's the end of this episode. Thanks for tuning in today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking about uh, cancel culture and um, DACA, and we really enjoyed the interaction with the students and the faculty and the staff that joined uh, the Lunch and Learn conversation today. Uh, special thanks to um, the Intercultural Center and their team for hosting us, and for you for downloading the podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, if you have questions, you can find us at Disrupt Whiteness. There's one N, uh, S at the end of whiteness on that, Disrupt Whiteness. Or you can email